right, we're going to start right now. Um, I am Ira Kirschbaum. I am the publisher and editor of the Journal of Orthopedic Experience and Innovation. Um, we are proud to bring on two authors of this article. The, the article, Spread Too Thin, How Has COVID-19 Pandemic Contributed to Burnout Among Academic Orthopedic Surgeons? Um, we have uh, Nisha Kale, who is the first author, and we have Mary Mulcahy, who I will call the senior author, okay? Um, and I also want to give a shout out to the other authors, Michaela Stam and Margaret Higgins as well. Um, they're not to be ignored. I'm going to stop sharing my screen for a second, and I'm going to go into my speaker mode. So first question. This is such a big topic. I, I read the article two times and then took out quotes some more. But maybe um, either Nisha or, or Mary, you can you can you can um, balance us by telling us a pretty solid definition of burnout. Hello, I'm Nisha. I'm the first author of this paper. Um, so I became interested in this topic by some of my research in college. I did a lot of research looking at burnout as it related to individuals studying genocide. And so the definition of burnout, job burnout is a special type of work-related stress. It's a state of physical or emotional exhaustion that also involves a sense of reduced accomplishment or a loss of personal identity. It's a phenomenon that's seen very commonly among physicians and other professionals in the US. And several studies have found that physicians, especially surgeons in particular, often experience personal and professional characteristics of burnout. Um, and we can discuss this, the symptoms later as well. So um, what, what do you feel separates surgeons from non-surgeons in this category. I was trying to tease that out in the article and, and I know there was some reference to it, but is there any characteristics you think? I mean, we could hypothesize, but Mary, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it's difficult to separate sometimes because of the amount of work and the type of work that we have to do, like some of the symptoms, which we'll just talk, touch on these because it's all interrelated. Um, some of them we experience just by the nature of our jobs. So, um, you know, some common signs of burnout include things like fatigue, right? I think probably all of us are tired every day, but fatigue, feeling apathetic or dissatisfied with your work. That is a really key defining sign of burnout, um, having tension headaches, noticing changes to like your diet or your sleep patterns. I mean, none of us, I think sleep that much, but noticing changes, having it be erratic or irregular and, um, and behavioral changes. And there are a lot of different behavioral changes, things like having a sense of failure or self-doubt and feeling helpless, trapped, defeated, right? These are very characteristic feeling detached from your job and from patient care, having a loss of motivation and being increasingly cynical and having a negative outlook decreased satisfaction and a sense of accomplishment. So I think, yes, underlying, yes, we're tired, we're busy, but we don't usually ex experience those things, right? That right. we're we're not motivated or we're cynical or we have a negative outlook. Like in general, as surgeons, we're very, very motivated. We're very passionate. We care a lot about what we do. We work hard. Uh, and so when you start noticing changes that like, this is not how I normally am, or this is not how I would normally approach this, uh, then that's really where you start to get concerned and where you hope that your colleagues or, you know, um, 
practice partners or, you know, students or co-residents that they will notice and that they will say something and try to intervene. Great. It's, it's really great that we're, we're, we're beginning to bring this out to the uh, forefront. Um, I wanted to, one part of the article I thought was really fascinating. The three categories of this sub subscale score, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization and a, and personal accomplishment you spent a long time on, on that article on this let's see if we can sort of uh parse these out separately a little bit i thought it was very interesting that you found out that older surgeons had a greater sense of personal accomplishment um am i right about that and quoting that correctly from the article that's correct so what do you what do you think that's so? You think they've just been around longer, or times have changed, and their their past times that are changing, or they've accomplished more? Is this, well, how can we hypothesize that as a group here? You know, older surgeons, uh, you know, been in practice more than twenty five years or something. I mean, I think also with that group. Um, so older surgeons or surgeons who are more experienced, uh, more mature in their practice may have also found ways to kind of balance uh, the many demands. And, and I mean, in this paper specifically, we were also talking about how COVID-19 impacted uh, yes. orthopedic surgeons in particular. So that is another like very specific factor. But, uh, but when we're talking about more mature senior surgeons in general, I think that there are probably a lot of different factors in terms of career satisfaction, like that they... Um, you know, that they have, the fact that they're still practicing 25, 30 years in obviously shows a lot of commitment and determination and passion. Uh, and in terms of um, being able to potentially mitigate uh, the symptoms of burnout, it may be just that they have found ways to balance, have family, have friends, have a good support system or network uh, that maybe younger surgeons or just developing in practice may not have that network as of yet. Nisha, what, what do you think? I can speak specifically to the measure that we use to, to look at burnout. So the three categories are based on something called the MBI, which is the Maslow's um, Human Services Survey for Medical Personnel. And this is essentially the gold standard for measuring burnout among professions and among physicians. It's validated by 35 over 35 years of research, and it's used in about 88% of burnout research publications. And essentially, the questions are very specific to an individual's personal feelings about burnout and how they see themselves in the workplace. So to answer your question about um, feelings of personal accomplishment, just looking at the survey, um, some of the questions that relate to the personal accomplishment score include like, I have accomplished many worthwhile things in this job. And then you rate it from a scale of zero to six, or I can easily create a relaxed atmosphere with my patients. Um, working with people directly puts too much stress on me. I have accomplished many worthwhile things in this job. So I do think going off what Dr. Mulcahy said, it makes sense that older surgeons may feel that they've accomplished more at their job. They feel that they can create a relaxed atmosphere for patients and they can deal with emotional issues that may come up at work just by the nature of having more experience. There was a question from Greg Brown. Uh, Greg is one of the senior editors of the journal. Greg, do you want to ask your question yourself, please? Uh, can I unmute quickly? Um, okay. You talked about earlier, Mary, about you notice a difference in your what would be normal. 
and you're coming out of residency and then your new faculty and then you know you're ramping up and maybe starting a family and when do you ever find normal yeah, it's a very good question i mean i think normal for us as surgeons is far from what is normal for most people but uh, but I think a key thing here is like, if we look specifically at fatigue or whatnot, like, yes, that is a sign or symptom of, of burnout, but it's those other things that are very concerning and that I think start to raise red flags. Um, and so when you start seeing those things, like that, you're just feeling detached and not wanting to be involved or to do the things that you need to be doing day to day in terms of patient care. And if you're in academics, like being involved in teaching and research, et cetera, um, wanting to kind of withdraw from that, that's where you get away from what is normal for us. Marty, you had a question to Marty Nichols. Yeah, sure. I mean, could some of that too just be the difference in expectation? You know, 20 years ago, uh, a busy orthopedic surgeon would see 20 to 30 patients a day in clinic, and 80 total joints a year or 80 surgeries a year was a was a pretty big year. Today, the, the surgeons come in and they're seeing set, you know 50 to 70 patients a day, and they're doing over 300 joints a year to make less money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mary, what do you think about that? No, I mean, I think that's a very good point and absolutely can contribute to certainly the fatigue aspect and burnout, just being feeling like you're working, working, working and can't like really keep up and may, you know, lead to that sense of just sort of lack of motivation and, and feeling like, well, what am I doing? Can I, am I really making progress? Am I contributing? Um, so yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why there is such a high rate of burnout, even when we remove COVID-19 from the picture, right? We're just talking about our sort of day-to-day -day lives. Um, those factors are really critical. Right. Jeff Smith, you have a question for us? More just that comment, because I think that that point can be driven home. I think some people can describe burnout as just a mismatch between expectation and reality. Um, that when people anticipate uh, challenge and struggle, uh, and they get it, they're less likely to be burned out than if they're not expecting it. And no matter what, it, whatever that expectation is, if it doesn't match, then, and it's a huge mismatch, then there's a much higher level of burnout. Yeah, I yeah, that's think, a great definition. Yeah, I think it is a great definition. I think that, uh, I was talking to some students today, I'm here at a, a college lecturing and, and I, um, you know, I, they asked me about this issue of of uh, a career and how to keep it fresh and how to keep it flexible. And uh, I said, listen, if you if your career was like doing standard tax return forms like HR H and R Block every day for eight hours, after a while, just that lack of enjoy a lack of flex of flexibility lack of um, excitement, um, you know, would probably burn you out doing the same, you know, it's like banging, you know, working at GM and being the person who bangs a fender at the end of the line all day for eight hours a day for 25 years. You know, it's hard to compensate that. I think a lot of surgeons, especially orthopedic surgeons, do a lot of varied things. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I don't know if that's specific to orthopedics, uh, what do some of you guys think? We, the, the, you know, the flexibility. Uh, some people do consulting. Some people do a variety of other things. Um, Mary, how, how does flexibility and doing different things and innovating yourself and redefining yourself? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that's very true. And I think even within the many facets of academic medicine, like we do a lot. And that um, I think for most of us, that's what's most gratifying is to, you know, obviously patient care is at the heart of this. But then also we have research, we have teaching, we have involvement in our journals, in our national societies, and all of those things help sort of stimulate and use different parts of our brain and our and and, and stimulate innovation and ideas um, and excitement and passion. And so I think that's really how we stay very engaged and that all of those things collectively are really important because if it was just the one piece, you know, dealing with hurdles, as someone was saying, like the many hurdles that we uh, deal with day to day and patient care, if that's all you're dealing with, then it's hard. You're maybe not as fulfilled if you don't have the stimulation from these other activities too. Mike, Mike Redler, you put up a question there. So it's kind of a question and a, and a comment. I, I think that, you know, those of us who've been doing this for a while know that just the ability to take good care of patients has become more challenging with peer to peer, with insurance denials. Uh, and, and so the goal of just taking care of good patients, I think, has become more and more challenging. And that frustration and all those roadblocks, I think, leads to more burnout. I don't know uh, what Anisha and Mary, you think about that, but that, that, that's, that's my perception. Yeah, I can comment on Dr. Redler, your and Dr. Southgate's comment about the control over the schedule and hurdles. So part of designing this survey was based on research done by Dr. Mulcahy, which was published in JAOS, looking at uh, the balance female orthopedic surgeons in particular have to go through being surgeons and also taking care of home life chores. And another study that I did with another faculty member looking at the impact of COVID-19 on orthopedic surgeons in Louisiana. And as a, a lot of people reported in that survey that issues with flexibility, with work, issues with managing their practices, issues with staff, issues with uh, mandates because of COVID-19 canceling elective surgeries created a lot of roadblocks that made it difficult for them to feel happy in their homes and feel happy at work. And that result was a large reason why Dr. Mulcahy and I wanted to look at academic surgeons across the United States in a broader lens. So I, I do think that there are a lot of different challenges and roadblocks that can make it difficult to balance uh, emotional well-being and all the tasks of being a surgeon, as Dr. Mulcahy mentioned. Yeah. Jeff, did you, Jeff Smith, you, you, you raised your hand or is that just a error, error in, in, uh, well, it was, I didn't want to, um, distract from Michael's comment, but your question about doing, um, you know, what kind of procedures a surgeon does. And I think that that is sort of individual dependent, that there are certain surgeons that choose to do a very limited number of of procedures, but be extremely good at that. Um, and they certainly are at risk of, of boredom from that. And that is a contributed to burnout. But if they value, you know, it depends on how big of a value doing different things is to them. Um, and many are successful at doing that because they don't really get their uh, joy or satisfaction or fulfillment from doing a lot of different things. And they sometimes have outside hobbies or leadership roles or other things that allow them to feel that their life is diverse and 
intriguing. But again, that's just all that's very individual dependent, I believe. Yeah, that's I had a question about that. I was wondering, you know, the more seasoned surgeons, um, the old school, like they did more. They weren't so specialized. They did general ortho. I know Dr. Krishabam did carpal tunnel surgery in private practice. He also did complex knee and hip revision surgeries. Uh, so I'm just wondering if just having that variety, does that, you know, make a difference or play a part in this whole thing? Yeah. Um, anyone want to take that question about the um, variability in your career? You know, With respect I, to the older or more seasoned generation. Yeah, I, take it. Um, uh, I'll give you my background. I, I started out in academics at the University of Minnesota at a level one trauma center. I switched to a large community multi-specialty group. I'm currently in a rural access 25-bed hospital in Williston, North Dakota, doing rural medicine. So a uh, pretty good spectrum. Eight months over in New Zealand, practicing in Auckland. Um, anyway, I, <clears throat> I think everybody, uh, you need to be open to opportunities in your career. And I, you know, 20, well, I, I haven't made the 25-year mark. This is my 24th year. So 23 years ago when I finished my fellowship in sports medicine, I went to a level one trauma center. I did not do a lot of sports medicine. Um, they needed a joint guy. And so, you know, I started doing joints. And, and, and so it's follow those opportunities. And in 2017, I was completely burned out. I was almost 20 years into my career. I was just fried. And I almost left clinical medicine. And I realized that working as a consultant was probably worse. So I stayed. But I, I, I drastically reduced my clinical time. And Three years ago, I found this job at this hospital, and I work 120 to 140 days a year. But I've got two, you know, 220 to 240 days a year to go do fun and recharge my battery. So every time I come back, my batteries are fully charged. And, and I think a big part was earlier comment about there's no way I can see 50 patients a day. I can't see 30 patients a day comfortably. I, I, part of what I enjoy is getting to know my patients. There's no way to get to know your patients in five minutes. So, so I think what the one word that captures a lot of what we've been talking about is purpose. And as Jeff just said, everybody's purpose is going to be different. You know, be it your clinical practice, being at you know involved in your specialty society or the academy or AOA or I volunteer as an examiner for ABOS. So I can't I can't coach people because that's not allowed. At least they're not supposed to. So. But anyway, I think it's it gets down to, I think you get burned out when you lose your purpose and you have to stop and you have to, you, you shut down. And uh, I was working much less. I, I was planning a pilgrimage in Japan when COVID hit. So I was over there for a week and came back. I had two months off. The best book I ever read was Why We Sleep. And after reading that, I pretty much get eight to nine hours every night and it's amazing how wonderful life is with that much food. 
but some, something to think about. <laughs> oh, it's interesting. I'd like Nisha or Mary to comment on that comment as it relates to this slide, which is from your article. Where, I hope everyone could read it, could see it. Um, where does purpose, is that in personal accomplishment? Do you get emotional exhaustion from doing the same thing over and over again? You know, the idea of feeling worthy of what you're doing and looking forward every day to doing that. Um, is that sitting in personal accomplishment or where, where, where does it sit in all three? I think just based on the survey, the feeling of like looking forward to your work and feeling like um, you have the energy to devote properly to your work and your patients would be more in the emotional exhaustion category. The depersonalization is more you have you feel like you have control over your own life. And then the personal accomplishment is your own feelings of how accomplished you are towards what you're doing. Okay. And I think it's important to note that among orthopedic surgeons, just in general, orthopedic surgeons have some of the highest personal accomplishment ratings of all surgeons when like surveys have done surgeons in different categories, general surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, urologists, et cetera. So I think orthopedic surgeons have a very high sense of personal accomplishment in their field. And when I stratified the data between men and women, there was no difference in personal accomplishment between men and women. Um, the only difference was age. But when I stratified between men and women and looked at emotional exhaustion and depersonalization, there was a significant difference. Women had much higher rates of emotional exhaustion, much higher rates of depersonalization than male surgeons. Um, so I think that those feelings are probably related more towards the work environment and other hurdles that maybe male and female surgeons have to uniquely face. Right. Mary, any comments or you just agree? No, no, I think you should do a great job answering that. And I mean, just adding to, you know, expanding a little bit, I guess, on the potential contributing factors to the differences in, in emotional exhaustion and depersonalization between male and female orthopedic surgeons. I think it does get a little bit to some of the other things we've seen in the literature too, about how, you know, male and female orthopedic surgeons or surgeons in general have similar demands at work, but different demands at home. Yeah. And, and some of those things were really exacerbated by the pandemic, but just in general, even day to day, um, those things with regards to family and kids and events, et cetera, may impact uh, or do actually impact female surgeons in a different way than male surgeons um, and definitely contribute to the whole, you know, to emotional exhaustion and depersonalization. Great. So I have a, another question that, that I think is always the 800 pound gorilla in the room when it comes to this. And that is whose responsibility is it to Whose responsibility is it to prevent or to mitigate the factors that are causing burnout? And I'm going to talk about in an employed setting, not a private practice person. You know, you know, you have a chairman, you have an administrator, you have a, you know, hospital administration. Who, who's obviously individual responsibility is important, but whose responsibility is to attack all those factors that are adding as Mike Redler pointed out, all those factors that are adding to burnout. What do you, what do you, what do you think? I mean, I guess I'll go first. Uh, I mean, I think it's, first of all, I think it's everyone's responsibility to be aware, to be paying attention on an individual basis. And certainly for those around you, uh, if we look in an academic setting, um, you know, certainly the department chair 
you hope has his or her pulse on this, what's happening within the department, what's happening within individual faculty. So that would probably be the most immediate person that you hope is overseeing this, is helping to provide some education, helping to raise awareness uh, and recognizing some of these red flags and implementing some potential solutions uh, when he or she sees that. Now I bring this article up. This is one of my favorite articles. It's from the Harvard Business Review. It was written by Reed Hoffman's the main author. He he actually was one of the co-founders of LinkedIn. And it's called Tours of Duty, the New Employer-Employee Compact. And I thought of this article when I read your article, because his the one of the theses in this is that every four years, the employer has to make it fresh for the employee and make a change in the environment and understand each individual worker and also the worker has to redefine themselves every four years he said so it's a combination of responsibilities between you know you can't just if you are the uh i'll unshare my screen for a second yeah if you are the chairman of the department you just can't say well just that's how administration is you know how it is you know or you throw up your hands, you know, when you're when someone says, oh, the EMR is horrible. Well, that's just the way it is. Well, maybe maybe that's not the right answer from leadership. Right. What are some thoughts about about the idea of who is responsible? Well, I, I think it's beyond even the hospital administration, if you want to talk about an employee situation. I, I mean, just, you know, the, 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 I saw it in the New York Times a few weeks ago about looking at Kaiser and United Health Group and everybody and upcoding everything and how it's essentially fraud. And, you know, this is, this is the whole game with the coding game. And to me, this is why so many of us are burned out is that it's not about caring for patients anymore. It's about generating RVUs and how many diagnoses can you list and, and you know, what can you generate? It's, it's, it's become a business. It's not about caring for patients. And, and if you went into it to care for people, it's hard to find that purpose and, 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 and find an organization that will support you and work for you. And, you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna tweak Jeff a little bit here. Um, I, I'm curious of his comment because I just had a, a beer with Ryan last week, um, and we were talking about coaching. And I part of my healing journey was was spending a year with Jeff taking his uh, surgeon coaching uh, course through surgery. Okay. and yeah. I think that really helped me focus and analyze and think about myself and everything else. And, um, but anyway, I, I think coaching is a pressure relief for the individual surgeon, but it doesn't change the system that they're working in. And so it can help them become more aware of their environment and maybe what's helping cause some of that burnout. But in and of itself, the coaching can't fix the system. It can't change how medicine is, has changed. And so we need bigger advocacy probably from the professional societies to, to you know to step back and say is this the right thing it's interesting jeff uh i'd like to call on you tell, tell us a little bit about that coaching maybe this is a 
shameless plug, but I would really like to know what uh, Greg is referring to on this on this coaching. Well, I've uh, I got into basically doing professional coaching, so I integrate that with my clinical practice and started doing also training other physicians uh, and surgeons to become coaches. Um, what my response back a little bit to Greg, because we like to do the fun little um, dueling thing is that coaches don't fix things. So, you know, as an orthopedic surgeon and particularly one that is an orthopedic trauma surgeon, I used to do a lot of fixing of fractures and realized how ultimately ungratifying that is other than it feels really good to do a good job, but um, doing other stuff where you actually interact with patients has helped me on my clinical side. And on the coaching side, you just create dialogue kind of very similar to what you're doing here is create a dialogue that people can think about, you know, what's, what's going well, what's could be going differently and then try to have some sort of, um, effect on creating some change. But, you know, what was alluded to is that, um, understanding what's going, what you're doing plays only a role in kind of maybe increasing your ability to set boundaries or manage a little bit of your life. But if you can't affect the system around you, you can only do that with either grassroots mm -hmm. below, or you can do it from very effective leadership top down. Um, but, but you can't do it as a solo individual. That's a great um, point. So, yeah, I mean, I'm glad to share more about the coaching, but I'm, I don't like doing uh, plugs. No, no, I just, <laughs> I just wanted to, you know, Greg mentioned it and uh, I am sure I'm, I wasn't the only one who had a question. We're at the, about the 30 minute mark and I actually prepared a poll. I've never done a poll on uh, Zoom. Uh, so this is my first one. So I'm going to launch it. And I think somehow you guys are going to have to answer some questions. All right. Did anything happen? Okay. Oh, there, there are questions you have to answer, right? Yeah, we're getting some movement on this. We're good. We're almost finished. I think there's a minute and 30 seconds left in the poll. 
And then we're going to pass these on to be certified by Maricopa County in Arizona. Because <laughs> they seem to be good at this kind of stuff in Arizona to certify elections. So we'll, we'll see how that works out. And uh, All right. Uh, I'm going to let it go 15 more seconds. And that would be it. Someone has their hand up. Oh, who has a hands up? Ash, Ashe Kale. You have a comment, sir? Oh, Ashe? He's muted. He's muted. <laughs> All right, so I'm, I'm going to end the poll, and I don't know what's going to happen when I end the poll. Hold on. Oh, here are the results. Could you guys see the results? Not yet. Share your screen. Share results. There we go. Are they up yet? Yep. All right. So let's let's just look at this for a second, and we'll get Mary, Nisha's, and Greg, and Jeff, and Michael, and everyone's opinions. Do you know more than one surgeon who's burnt out? Certainly, a vast majority said yes. Top cause of burnout. It seems that all the paperwork is almost 50%. Low reimbursement, insurance company actions, government regulations, not that big. Hospital administration, not <laughs> as big as I thought. Can industry help? That meant orthopedic industry. And the answer is yes. Um, be more aware of operative stresses. Increased CME training offices, 36%. And 60% was support surgeon course on burnout. So that may be things, you know, maybe instead of yet another double row rotator cuff repair course, we have a surgeon burnout course. Not that double row rotator cuffs are not important. I, as my attendings who are on this call now, I know that I do have minimum respect for sports medicine surgeons, but the reality, <laughs> the reality is that nice thing. Do you feel any of your specialty societies address this issue? Well, some say yes, and some say no. A little bit more yes, but it's sort of like in the middle. How can so, they? So, so, Ira, your stuff is not. We only see questions one and two on the screen. Oh, really? You can scroll down on yourself. You can I did. Yeah, yourself. you can scroll, oh, down. scroll down. I, I yourself. Saw I saw everything. Uh, apparently, I can do it myself. So sorry. Okay, there you go. Yeah, All right, and then we got uh, academies, and what can they do? Interesting enough, this was an idea I had a while ago, the idea of turning orthopedic surgeons and their relationship with it, with insurers and the government into like the NFL Players Association. Good luck. They have well, independent... It's all the union, Ira. Well, it's kind of in the <laughs> NFL Players Association, but, they, uh, but they're a little different because they all make different salaries. They don't have a single contract, right? So... So I, I like the NFL Players Association Union more than I like 1199 Union or AFL-CIO, you know? Sure. sure. You know, because a differential because run courses on this issue and organize surgeons better. Uh, at least 52% of you thought that. All right, so I'm going to stop sharing this. I don't, hopefully I can save this later in the end and uh, fi find a reasonable journal to, to, to put it into. Um, 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 let's go. Richard Southgate, 
you uh, you talked about a an, an article you saw today. Uh, you're probably the last orthopedic surgeon who's still reading, Rich. Um, it too efficient how being too efficient in clinic. Talk about that article. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so it was an interesting article I came across on LinkedIn. So um, it's on the Washington Post uh, from a couple weeks ago, and it's written by this cardiology fellow. And she starts off with this interesting anecdote where she's in the she's in the ICU, and obviously she's busy. She's not able to get to what sounds like a, some sort of uh, clinic patient uh, who's in her panel, and uh, she ended up getting yelled at by the patient because this old lady called earlier in the morning about a headache and didn't get a phone call until the end of the day. So um, she then kind of goes off about, you know, some of these touches on some of these issues of burnout. But what was interesting to me is I, I related to a lot of that. And, you know, like what Dr. Brown said, you know, when I think about why I initially wanted to be a radiologist, uh, but within a month or two of medical school, I decided that was not for me. And that's because I realized that I enjoyed my, uh, you know, doctor patient relationship course where I enjoyed talking to patients and I didn't want to sit in a dark room all day or be irradiated in the fluoro suite. So um, my grandfather had a couple of knee replacements. That's what drove me to orthopedics. And one of my favorite things of clinic, especially in arthroplasty, is just meeting up with these healthy older folks who are doing well and, and happy that you help them out. Now, you know, if you have, if you're seeing 20 or 30 patients a day, that's a lot of time to be able to make a connection with all these patients. As you start to crest 50, 60 patients a day, um, I've seen people do 80 patients a day. They're excellent surgeons, but at that point, the patients become a little bit commoditized. And I think for some people, some individuals, that's totally fine. Uh, but I know for me, what I would really miss out on was one of those main pieces that I went to orthopedics for, which is the making the uh, human connection with the patient. That's a great and, Yeah. So she, she kind of elaborates on that a little bit. It's a pretty quick read, but, um, yeah, she, one of her mentors told her, well, don't make their response to her problems were basically you shouldn't try and have a personal connection with your patients. It's going to make you a, a a more efficient doctor that way. Richard, I think you're just doing geriatric sports medicine. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to. Good patient population. I actually would like to build a time machine and go back to Iowa and be a joint replacement surgeon for World War II vets in the VA in Des Moines. That would yeah. be my optimal career path. Uh, the, the time machine alone would make you enough money to not have to worry about reimbursement. <laughs> so I think that's works out. Um, I'm going to bring up a, a, a quote from the article again. Um, this was it. This is uh, Nisha and Mary's words exactly. Changing practice dynamics, financial distress, and lack of workplace flexibility were all contributing factors to burnout, <laughs> right? You stand by that, Nisha, right? So let's make believe that Greg Brown is the chairman. We have 40 people on this call. We're all partners in an orthopedic group. Greg Brown is the chairman. What advice are we going to give Greg Brown, who has complete 
ownership and leadership of the practice. Uh, we, we took them out of rural North Dakota. And uh, what, what changing practice dynamics do we need to correct? Let, let's see if we can make a list of what changing practice dynamics. I Is think it? it's apples and oranges. Okay. Yeah, I think if we have a we work with a very special population in the country, the lowest socioeconomic level, right? Right. Uh, in the country, so I I don't think that we can necessarily compare with other practices and specialties. Okay, but if you could find some common ground, a common denominator about some of these three issues, changing practice dynamics, financial distress, lack, what kind of workplace flexibility helps? What, what does anyone have to say? You know, what do you want workplace flexibility that won't burn you out? Uh, Dr. Kirschenbaum, I can comment. I'm sorry, I, I raised my hand earlier. Oh, I did not. Yeah, yeah, we saw it. I'm sorry, I, I, I'm not technologically advanced, so I did not unmute myself. Uh, I'm Ashay Kale. I'm, a, I'm an orthopedic surgeon who's been practicing for about uh, 23 years. Okay. Um, and anyway, my, my view, um, you know, when I, when I first started, I, I did general orthopedics. I did everything. I did, um, you know, fractures. I did joint replacements. I did even a little bit of spine surgery here and there. Um, but, you know, as I got more into my practice or into my later years, um, you know, I found that I wasn't able to do everything well that I wanted to do. Yep. And I would say that one way that I found to actually avoid burnout um, was working to subspecialize in uh, procedures that I was comfortable doing. And I, I did a sports fellowship and a shoulder and elbow fellowship. So I sort of specialized in those procedures and became really good at those. And, um, you know, then then you would get referrals from the community and from other uh, orthopedic surgeons who knew that you were good at those. And then, you know, I, I felt that I was doing a really good job taking care of those patients. Um, and to me, that was, a, that was a way to sort of avoid getting burned out in seeing things that I didn't want to see or that I felt I couldn't handle. Um, and overall, I think it's been uh, very good for my, my, you know, mental state and, and well-being as, and as well as my practice. That's just a perspective that I, that I wanted to share. No, it's an important one. Mike Redler, you raise your hand. I did. And, and thank you for seeing my hand in the air. Um, so my thought is that regardless of whether you're in private practice, regardless of whether you're in an academic practice, I think there are certain things that, that uh, remain consistent. If you're in academic practice, uh, there is the challenge of RVUs. If you're in private practice, there is that monthly um, financial statement that states how well you've done. And, and part of what happens in a lot of practices is those big producers become uh, the, the king of the hill. Mm -hmm. And if you are an academic practice and if you're not meeting your RVUs, you're not the king of the hill. 
And I think that there's a careful balance between great patient care, between interaction and knowing your patients, and that spreadsheet that says you're successful, which is all, which is numbers. And, and I frankly think that there has to be some balance, but that ability to be in the game becomes a big challenge for orthopedic surgeons, whether you're in private practice or whether you're in academic practice, uh, to prove that you know you're, you're you're a significant contributor, and that significant contribution is a financial evaluation as a, as opposed to perhaps a patient outcome evaluation. There has to be some balance in between. At the end of the day, it's all about the numbers. Well, unfortunately, I think that that's true. And uh, we know within any of our practices, especially those of us in orthopedics where there are multiple subspecialties, uh, you, and I, I'm gonna pick on spine guys for a second because there are such uh, high reimbursement, they pretty much are certain they're more important and they work harder because their numbers are greater. And I think that that puts a lot of pressure on that. And I don't mean to speak on them, but, but it's the reality of it. There, there is pressure to, to uh, be a significant contributor and, and to try and fight back the fact that the numbers are the almighty evaluator of whether or not you are a successful part of the practice. It's a great and that's point. part of the whole burnout, part of the uh, burnout problem, right? Absolutely. Well, I think it, I think it puts additional pressure that goes away. I mean, you talk about the 30 patients versus the 50 patients. It talks about, you, know, you had a slide up earlier about the number of cases you do in any given year. Uh, taking time off, getting that extra case in. It, 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 there's a lot of things that uh, are not specifically patient care related that create additional stress. Yeah, I, I want to throw something out and then get Nisha and Mary's comment about that. One of the lines I use, and uh, I'd like to introduce Sepeda Bagian, who's been talking, she's the chief of hand surgery, he's been with the department for 15 years, uh, which is exactly the same amount of time I've been with the department. Um, I like to talk about the concept of currency rather than money, that there's different kinds of currency and we need to reevaluate, I think we need to reevaluate important currency. If a spine surgeon is making a lot of money, but is not doing well on call or is not treating the PAs well or is not treating the staff well. That, that's currency that needs to have value in the practice or in the department. Um, you know, uh, we work in, I work, we work in an odd place and we work in the South Bronx. I mean, it's the poorest congressional district in the nation. But, you know, and I have a hand surgeon who's on right in front of you who takes pus out of some of the worst pus hands in the nation. And that, that may not reimburse a lot, but that has a lot of currency and value. And I think orthopedics for a while might've gone down the, the only currency is money, as Mike said. And when really we need to have outcomes patient satisfaction, staff satisfaction, being a good team player, um, you know, getting things done. I mean, I, Nisha, what, what Sepeda said, what Mike said, and what I said, Mary and Nisha, some comments on that? 
So I just want to note that um, in the survey that we did, which uh, the survey that we did, which we sent to like 220 ac academic orthopedic surgeons, we did ask about approximate yearly compensation from less than 100,000 per year and then split into categories, 300, 500, 700, and then over 900,000. And there was actually no significant difference in burnout between the different types of compensation. So that is, that's kind of almost contradicts like what you would think. You would think that people that are more co compensated more would have less burnout, but it actually didn't seem to play as large of a role as things like gender and like things they had to do in the household and uh, amount that they felt their workplace was flexible and other outside factors. Ira, can we, can we step back just a second? So sure. money's an external motivator. Internal motivators are mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And so I agree with what you're saying. And I think it's all become about the RVU and the dollar and external motivators you can never get enough of. So whether you're earning $300,000 and you want $400,000 or you're earning $900,000 and want a million dollars a year, it's never enough. And so if that's your motivator, you're going to burn out and you're never going to be happy. And every time someone gives you a payment cut or adds another form or whatever, you're pissed off because you just lost money. I don't feel that's part of burnout, though. Well, actually, I, I think if that's their if that's their purpose, if they went into orthopedics to make money, I think it does contribute to burnout. And from not one of the criteria of burnout by definition. Well, okay. I think we all do pretty well. Yeah. You know, no, no, I, I, I agree with you. And, and like I said, I was burned out five years ago and I, and I drastically cut back my clinical practice. And I just, I told myself, you know, it's not worth the money. I need the time and I'd rather have the you know, personal wellness. And right. so I consciously took a drastic pay cut and work less and and so it's i guess what i'm saying is it's very interrelated it's very tightly and and i think i way back when when you were asking people to give me advice i think as a chairman the advice is to figure out how your partners can make those decisions say you know what I want to work four days a week so I can spend a day home with my kids or, you know, or, or whatever, or, you know what, I'll take less call and I'll give up some of my call pay to my partner that's going to take my call, you know, and, and, and construct a system where you can, you can create the practice that you can thrive in. You know, it's, um, it's very interesting comment with, with, um, because uh, interestingly enough, I'm a chairman of pretty 955 bed hospital, and we try to do as many um, flexible deals as possible with people. But in the end, the CEO has to, and the CFO have to have to bless some of them, and yeah. they they don't necessarily always see the innovation mm -hmm. to keep people on the farm. Yeah, and that's not only because you're in North Dakota. I use the farm analogy. No, no, no. no. I, I, 
but I and 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 that's your job as chair to convince them why it is the thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, a absolutely. You know, one absolutely. of the things I read that hit me that sentence that you put up there hit me when I read the article too. And as someone that's worked with a lot of orthopedic surgeons over the years, I, one of the things that hit me when I read that sentence that you put up was. Most of the physicians that I worked with, I've worked with, work very hard to be very good at their craft, and part of that is control. When they walk into a room with a patient, they can control the outcome of that interaction and that 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 face-to-face -face visit with the patient. When they walk into the OR, they can control the outcome of that surgery, you know, by what they do. But all three of those things that you put up there right now, most of the physicians that I work with and stuff don't believe they have any ability to control any of that stuff. They believe it's just completely out of their hands. And I think that creates some of the burnout and churn as well. Yeah. Why don't they have control? They don't have control because they don't control whether the reimbursements get cut this year or, or, or not. They don't have control, uh, especially when they work in a hospital environment and stuff. When I first got in this industry, when that surgeon walked in the room, they were king or queen. They had complete control of things. Now they're told how they have to deal with different people, how they have to deal with the staff, things they can and can't do inside of that OR. And that's their patient that's on the table. And I just, I just watch it. You can just see the level of the frustration with these surgeons. Because I think almost every surgeon that I've ever worked with in 30 years, I guess, and stuff, the primary thing that almost drove almost every surgeon wasn't ever money. It was their ability to care for a patient and to, and to create an outcome or to have an effect on that outcome. And they're losing control of that. They, they no longer always feel, this is why I think they're also driving the ASCs for less money. They'll do the same procedure in an ASC for less money, but they feel they have control. When they walk in that room, they feel that they have a better ability to control the outcome of, of what they're doing. I think it's a, it's an amazing point, Marty. I think I I will give you a vignette. I walked into the OR. It was about six years ago. I walked into the OR and the CRNA was playing music on her on a very scratchy speaker. And people who know me know I really value music in the OR. We we have a very expensive Bose unit we put in there. So I said to her, you know, you're really going to have to cut that music. Now, not because I didn't like the music, but really, she didn't know this. It was because of the scratchy speaker and stuff, you know. But she made the mistake of saying, it's my operating room, too. And I said, listen, even though the recovery room is now the post-anesthesia care room, and even though pre-admission testing is now pre-anesthesia testing, that doesn't make this the anesthesia room. This is still the operating room. Okay, and I'm still the surgeon. And if I have to break your scratchy speaker, I will, but you're welcome to use my Bose speaker and play your music. She said, Oh, that's what you meant. And then she used, you know, we listened to her music on the Bose. But you know, it's not it this that's not the I mean a lot of a lot of surgeons wonder, is it the operating room anymore? Right? Or is it the anesthesia room? Or is it the what what whatever? Whatever room, the procedural room, the proceduralist room. I, I'm not really sure. So who would like to make it's the CFO's room because they won't authorize you to use that input? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, I'd like Mary. With I ever bought the Bose speakers for the ORs. Just what? To put there. You bought the Bose speakers for our ORs. Yes, I did. That's what that's a form of the budget. Yeah. yeah 
That was from our own budget. So I'd like Mary and Nisha to sum us up a little bit and with a couple of wise words. We'll start with- uh, I do have one last issue. I wanted to bring up the single childless female orthopedic surgeon issue before we, and I know we're at time, but I, I that was a really profound uh, observation on, on their study. So I wanted to bring that up. Mary, Nisha? That comment yeah, thought. Yeah, go ahead, Nisha. Um, just wanted to comment on that. So, of course, this is uh, one of the main findings of our study, but definitely also a weakness of our study. There are not many single, there's not many female orthopedic surgeons to begin with, and the number of single female and childless orthopedic surgeons among that category. In that category. So, I, in our school, we only had 14. And, but, when looking at that sample and looking at things like emotional exhaustion, depersonalization and feelings of personal accomplishment, those 13 surgeons had significantly higher scores for burnout than all of the other male surgeons. And that made it a significant finding. And even though it's like a very small sample size, I don't think it's insignificant because when you're comparing like that level of, of data to our larger pool, it's a very significant finding. And it actually, uh, mirrors some prior studies that have shown that things like marriage and family can be uh, protectors against burnout because of having a more social support system, as well as other studies that show that women who are not within the traditional confines of a family or who are outside of the norm of whatever is expected tend to experience more discrimination and harassment and difficulties in the workplace. So that was the main finding of, of that part of the survey. All right. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, first, thank you all so much for this fantastic discussion, for inviting us to to talk a little bit about this article. Um, I think some things we can take away. We know there are risks. There are risks in what we do. And then we have added stressors like day to day. And certainly the pandemic was a huge stressor. And thankfully, we're coming out of that uh, certainly more so than we were two and a half years ago. But uh, but some other things to keep in mind, right? There are things that we can do and we've touched on some of these. Um, having a great network and support system. I mean, many great colleagues on this uh, on this call here, but, but leaning on each other, leaning on our practice partners, leaning on our uh, colleagues who are within and outside of our institution, um, doing things to support each other, doing things to support, especially those at higher risk. So we've just touched on female orthopedic surgeons, uh, single, et cetera, like recognizing the risk factors uh, and trying to help and uh, and doing things like exercising regularly, right? For, for any of you who find that a priority, certainly that's a huge thing for me, um, helping to just sort of handle everything else, trying to sleep. We talked about sleep earlier on and prioritizing that um, because it does, it gives you sort of a better outlook and better able to like focus and deal with the day-to-day -day challenges that we face. Um, so those are all some things to keep in mind. Uh, and certainly there are things that we can do, but we, we need each other to, to support each other through, uh, through all that we do. So thank you guys again for this opportunity. What can the institutions do for us? Mary, Nisha, you want to take that on? What can the institutions do? I mean, some of the things we were mentioned also in the chat, like uh, trying to like defray some of the the busy bee type of work that we would have to do that really it doesn't necessarily have to be done by the orthopedic surgeon, like whether it's a scribe or making sure you have some sort of dictation system, whether it's dragon or whatnot, but like something that's going to make it a, you know, a little bit more efficient so that you're not sitting there 
tap, tap, tapping away or going home with, you know, 20 to 30 charts or whatever at the end of the day um, or whatnot, just additional work, right? Trying to make sure that you can get everything done, you get it done in an efficient manner, that you still have time to spend with your patients, like that, those types of things the institution can do, uh, providing some education, helping to raise, raise awareness, having wellness type things built into what you do annually, like something certainly offered through the institution and within your department. Um, those are just all some suggestions. All right. So with that, I want to thank uh, Mary Mulcahy, who I will apologize for misspelling your name on LinkedIn. I left out the E. My apology. That's okay. Uh, Nisha Kale, I wish you luck. If anyone is looking for a great resident, you should interview her and take her now uh, before <laughs> this journal club ends, because she will be swooped up quite quickly by many big programs. I want to thank everyone for coming again and your support of uh, all we're trying to do to make things just a little better and a little different, okay? So we'll all sign off now, and uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks, Ira. Bye, everyone. Take care.